This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenums might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenums, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. But today you are tuned into a little bit of a different type of episode. You know, recently, if you are, for our longtime listeners, we have traditionally had weekly episodes over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and now we've expanded a little bit. We have our OITE review series, which we continue to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and we also have our citation classics, and recently we've been doing a little bit more into the kind of career development type things, uh, as well as kind of personal finance and other things that may not necessarily be taught in residency as often as some of our traditional orthopedic surgery topics. Now, we are continuing to do episodes with traditional orthopedic surgery topics, but again, this one's going to be a little bit more different, okay? Um, this episode, we're going to talk more on a different type of a different type of practice, more what's called locums, and this is something that I didn't really know anything about when I came in to residency. I never heard of a, a locums job or even knew that it was an option for an orthopedic surgeon, so today we're going to venture a little bit into that. And we're also going to, before we venture into that, we're going to talk a little bit about residency. You know, we have a lot of residents that listen to this podcast and residency may not always be as easy um, as you think it could be. You know, there could be some bumps and, and, you know, and some obstacles to overcome. So we're going to talk a little bit about the a little bit more difficult side of residency or some of the challenges that um, that our guest has, has faced as well as other people that I personally know of face many of these similar kind of issues or just obstacles overcome during a residency career. So we're going to start out talking about that, and then we're going to get into what locums is, how, what it's actually like having a locums job, the amount of money you can make doing locums, what it is again, and kind of some of the do's and don'ts uh, in a general overview of kind of this field or this kind of career choice, which again, it's a little bit different. So we have locums, we have academic medicine, we have private practice. We've gone over some episodes of private practice in the past. And now we're just going to just show some more things. And we got an awesome guest today, really great episode. I just listened to it again um, after editing it. And now I go back and, and do the intro because I, you know, it's fresh in my mind. And again, she did, she did a great job. And here we have Dr. Sonia Sloan um, to come and talk to us and, and a little bit more about her. She has done a lot, um, a little bit about Dr. Sonia Sloan. She actually graduated from residency at Baylor College of Medicine. And before that, she was actually the first African-American female orthopedic surgical resident at Baylor at all. 
and then also the first African-American female orthopedic surgery residents at Baylor uh, Baylor College of Medicine. So she's going to talk a little bit about that. She's done some research as well, and she's published in, uh, in different journals. She's actually an entrepreneur as well before this, which she'll talk about a little bit in the show. She started a business called Not Just Coffee, which was an entrepreneurial venture and which was later on sold. Um, she has also established two nonprofit organizations called the African American Association for Christian Physicians, as well as Motivating and Empowering Women to Excel, or Me and We Incorporated, uh, which both of these organizations reached over 5,000 women daily. She has also helped to start international medical clinics and has done so in Haiti um, and helps go down and serve communities of over 100,000 men, women, and children. She has also started the Sloan STEM and Arts, which is a faith-based educational diversity initiative, and its sole purpose is to increase the number of minority students in STEM careers through early exposure and mentoring, as well as impacting financial stability for generations to come. And I mean, she has done a lot. I really hope you all enjoy this episode. She shares a lot with us and she goes through a lot of different things. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Sloan, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am so happy to have you on. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I know we, I followed you before we even met in person at the Academy yeah. um, a couple of months ago, or maybe that was, yeah, about two yeah. months ago. Yeah, about two months ago. Mm-hmm. And just looking, you know, just, I mean, being following you and then kind of looking at some of the different things you've got going on, I've just been really looking forward to speaking with you. So again, really happy that you took the time out of oh, your day. I'm, I'm glad you have a podcast for us to be doing this. You know, this is awesome for, for you at this time in your career. I love it. I think it's great. Oh, I appreciate that. And just to kind of give a, our listeners kind of a little bit of background about who you are. Can you kind of just tell us a little bit about like where you grew up with, what kind of household you grew up in, just a little bit Ooh, of background yeah. to Dr. Small. Oh, yeah. So you really going to dive in. Um, I grew up in a small town, North Texas, right on the Oklahoma, Texas border. So you sort of know where we're at, where we were. Yep. Denison, Texas was uh, smaller than my college, which was 23,000. Texas Tech was 26,000 when I got there. Yeah. Um, I was a chemistry major, um, but I was, you know, an athlete in high school. I was gymnast. Uh, I did competitive gymnastics for years and then um, track. I did volleyball, um, but I injured my knee running the hurdles. So uh, going into my senior year regionals, uh, 100 meter hurdle, knocked it out, sublux my patella. My mom's a nurse, 40 something years. And I've been in the hospital, I grew up around the hospital, but I never saw a doctor that was a black or a female. So that always stuck with me, even in small town Denison, but um, thinking I was going to go into the medical field, but knew I didn't necessarily want to be a nurse just because I thought there was more. And uh, getting to work with Dr. Um, his name was Dr. Black, white guy, but Dr. Oh, wow, Black was his that. name. Ironic. He was the coolest guy ever. Like he was 
just not like the other doctors. He was laid back. It was like fun, you know, going into his office and getting to, to hang out in the summer with him. And then, so he took care of my knee. I didn't have to have surgery, which was great. Uh, but I got to see a lot of the surgeries. And so in fact, one of the first surgeries was a knee scope ACL that I got to really? see orthopedic wise. Yeah. And I loved it because it was like, okay, now this person is going to rehab and be done. You know, it's like they broke it, you fix it, they get better and they go away. You know, it's not like internal medicine or, you know, diabetes or hypertension, it's not going to go away. So nonetheless, I get to college and um, most people were like, well, you, you know, if you're going to go to medical school, you got to be pre-med. I didn't want to be biology. So the whole point was like, what can I do if I don't go into medicine? So I chose to be a chemistry major. And at Texas Tech, there was only two blacks that were actually chemistry majors. So um, we got a lot of the scholarships and that kind of stuff got a lot of attention, but it still was not clear to me um, the culture that we were in. I'll say it like that. So being sort of blind to it, um, went through a lot of uh, craziness at Texas Tech after I won homecoming queen. I was the first black homecoming queen at Texas Tech. So uh, we were big 10 at that point and it was um, phenomenal because we went through a racist uh, situation with two fraternities and a sorority. And I was the person that led the charge to say, this is wrong. And um, basically over the next two years, my life was crazy. And I learned to stand up for myself. I learned to fight back and learn to speak up and, you know, sort of do the political justice side of, of things. Um, but then fast forward, finished my chemistry degree and I was going home and I got waitlisted into medical school at Rush in Chicago. So I call myself being mad at God and um, I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> and so my mom and dad were like, you got to come home for the summer, you know, so the apartment's done. You got to come on. So I left tech and came home for the summer. I thought I would just work for a while and then, you know, reapply to everything else. So I did that. And um, as I was reapplying, um, I was at home and met my husband. And so it was someone I knew we grew up sort of together, but didn't like he was my cousin's best friend, but he was always like, oh, yeah, I know him, you know, kind of thing. But he'd come home from Morehouse and it was just different dynamics, different situation. We were very educated. We could talk. We could you know, laugh. We could you know, just connect. And so um, he was going to Princeton for his theology, theology degree. And uh, so I went up there and I was like, this is great. I love this area in the fall. And it was just perfect weather and coffee houses everywhere. everywhere else. So I decided to take a chemistry job up at Johnson Johnson in Brunswick. Okay. And uh, so I went home to break the news to my parents, you know, unbeknownst to them. And I said, well, can we go like to a coffee house and just sit down and talk? And they're like, we don't have any coffee houses. We don't, we don't have any coffee houses. We have IHOP and we have, uh, um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, kettle, the kettle, yeah, which was Texas, like, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it was like a Denny's and that was it. And I was like, we have Austin college and a junior college, Grayson County. And we don't have a coffee house for students, you know, and all these churches and whatever else. So long story short, $50,000 later, I opened up my first business at age 23. And it was called Not Just Coffee. We sold coffees and teas. Uh, we had pastries and cookies and, and the basic coffee house. And so it was like I had the vision of the coffee houses were not in the South yet. They were sort of East Coast, West Coast, and it was moving into the South in 2000. It was 1994, 95. And uh, sure enough, we built it out and had it for about three years, ended up selling it, making a little bit of money. Um, I got into medical school in the meantime. So my parents ran it until we sold it. Uh, and then two years after that, Starbucks bought that same area. Wow. Amen. And, and, you know, and they're still there. So it was like, I was a little ahead of the game, but 
um, that was my entrepreneurship start. And then ever since then, I've been in it, you know, still found other businesses to get into on the side and other things to do just because it's always a side hustle, you know, definitely. Uh, and then went to medical school, UTMB in Galveston, did not go to New Jersey, you know, came to Galveston, UTMB, and um, loved it, had a great experience in medical school, was really, really good. Um, wasn't easy, don't get me wrong, was not easy by no means, but it was definitely good. Knew I loved ortho, knew I wanted to go into ortho, um, was discouraged to go into really? ortho. Really? By who? It was all all guys club, you know, it was like anybody in the department. I had one guy, Marty Ivy, tall, six, six, you know, you know, more of a uh, Swedish looking kind of gentleman, you know, very dapper, but he was good old boy and just like, well, Sonia, if you want to do it, you can do it. You know, it was, it was one of those. The motivation. So, yeah, it was the motivation of like, I'll be behind you. So it was different than a mentor versus an advocate, you know? So he was my advocate and he would speak up for me. He would take up for me. He would push me. Um, and so uh, didn't match in general, in, in ortho match in general surgery. Mm -hmm. So then I had to, um, well, back up. I said, I didn't match. It was more of, I scrambled because I didn't get into ortho. So then I scrambled into a spot in the general into, yep. Correct. And then, so, um, but I do believe God has a time and a place for everything. So, uh, my intern year at Baylor college of medicine was hard as hell. Uh, cardiothoracic surgery. I was before that 80 hour work week. So, you know, 140 hours working. The cardiothoracic, it's no joke. Like they, cardiothoracic <laughs> they work is, oh man, like that was some <laughs> of my worst nights, you know, but um, I was in the room. I was at our, we were our level one trauma. And I was in the room when the guy came in that was ortho. He, we were all interns in general surgery and he decided he was getting married. He was going to transfer into anesthesiologist, which his wife was an anesthesiology and he didn't want to do ortho. So I just happened to be sitting in the room <laughs> like, huh. calling okay. to give his resignation. Like, what are the odds? You know, wow. you, I can't make this stuff up. So I'm like literally, you know, calling my chief resident and was like, I got to go. I got to go get my resume. I got to get my CV together. And I got to take it over to ortho department or whatever else. And everybody knew I wanted to do ortho. So it wasn't a surprise. So when I got there, Dr. Lindsay, great guy, African-American, spine doc, and uh, he was the acting chief of the ortho department. And uh, if you ever get a chance to meet him, you, he's a connection you need, definitely. Okay. And he was so like, you know, how did you, how did you know? Like, <laughs> we, we haven't even like just hung up the phone kind of thing, you know, and here I am with my resume. So uh, they interviewed 25 of us, got down to top 10. I uh, went through a second interview process and I eventually got the job. So, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. And then I say that to reiterate, um, be careful what you ask for, what you pray for, you know, because uh, the next five years were a living hell. I had good days and I had bad days, but I was the first African-American um, orthopedic female at Baylor College of Medicine and in the state of Texas. And what was that experience like? I know you were just saying, you know, it was, it was rough, but so what, what were some of the things that you went through going through that experience, going through residency first? It was, uh, it was daunting in the sense of you think you're a team player, you know, and you think that everyone has the same motive and agenda and they don't. And you're not taught that. You're not taught um, everybody's not on the same page, you know, so that's rule number one in my book, you know, the rules of medicine, trust no one. It's not really about, oh, I want to be your friend and I'm not going to trust you or whatever. It's the fact that everyone's competitive. 
uh, everyone is not on the same page. And, and even though we are assuming we're all a team player, we're really not because it's about, you know, what you want and what you're trying to get, right? So that was the mis- misunderstanding on my part, partly. And then the other right, thing- Right, and I'd just like to say, good book, by the way. I remember- Oh, thank you. Thank think you. your story where your co-intern gave you the wrong info when you're presenting. Correct. So again, trust no one for those trust of Trust no one, yeah. It made him book, look good, but it made me look bad. It made right. me look bad. And it was like, I thought we were- I'm getting the x-rays, you're getting the labs. And he was giving me day old labs. And I didn't know. And it wasn't until one of the VA nurses told me, she said, he's been giving you the bad labs because he wants to go to the OR, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, who would do that? You know, and I was like a nice person, small town, naive, green, you know, kind of thing. Um, but but all the, also there was different bullies. I, I had good people, you know, that were there. Um, the bad people probably outweighed it just because we're culturally different in how we handle things, how we speak, how we deal with things, our expressions, and everyone's not comfortable with that or accepting of that. And then especially if you're in a boys club, um, there's certain types of understandings and situations that are just the norm that no other place does that exist, you know? Uh, we're going to the strip club, okay, let's all go to the strip club then, you know, it's that. Right. Because that's what the guys were doing that night, you know, whatever else, and we're at a conference. And, you know, if you're gonna be part of the team, you hang out with them, you know, whatever. And so it's not built for everyone, you know, and it wears on you, and it wears on your heart, it wears on your spirit, because not only you're trying to learn a trade, you're trying to learn the knowledge and it's a lot of information. And then you're trying to learn how to be clinical and you're trying to learn how to be the physician and professional. And then I'll add on top of that, being in a in all boys and only black, you know, and then in our culture, it's more of a men don't necessarily speak the way women do or the women, specifically black women, don't always respond the way a lot of people think that they should. And so right. doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different, you know? And so that was very hard because you're the odd person out and you feel lonely you feel isolated. Uh, and then you're still trying to learn and get ahead. Um, so what it made was a, a better me in the sense of surgeon and skills and that kind of stuff. Cause you're constantly trying to prove yourself as well. But at the same time, when you come out, you know, that you're damn good. You know, that right. you're damn good. And and unfortunately, I'm sure there are still some places like that out there today that still haven't had an African American yeah. resident. Uh, what a few, there are many. What? <laughs> and so, what advice you know, having gone through your personal uh, experiences, uh, you know, being the first African American at your program, what advice would you give for those that may be undergoing you know a similar situation, may not even be African American, maybe the first international person at their program, whatever else it may be? What are some of the the, the tools or tactics that you would be able to, that you would recommend to them? Great question. We actually just had a, uh, we have it called fireside chat last night with um, some of the new residents that are coming in for the black women orthopedic surgeons. So this organization, as well as wow, women of the world that are orthopedics um, tactics and uh, strategy. So strategic planning, you have to be strategic in going forward. Uh, again, it's not enough to just get in. It's not enough just to study and do the surgeries and go through the rotations. You have to know that if adversity is going to come towards you, what are you going to do with that? So some of the strategies strategies I would tell people would be, number one, the communication that you're going to have to have with your department 
or that organization um, has to be on a level that is professional, but also very much to the point that you are letting them know that you're very much aware that this is not a place that you're just going to take a, a side, you know, a side seat. Um, a lot of times there's writing that may go into the file, into your um, disciplinary file that may be, oh, it's just a review from your um, rotation. Uh, and it may be something as small as, oh, they're green. You know, you're an intern, you're supposed to be green, you know, but if you're having to say that, that's code talk for they're not experienced and they're not good, mm. you know? So if you're not knowledgeable, meaning you need a mentor or an advocate for you that is somebody that is above you or outside of your field, you know, or, or um, uh, already practicing that can say, no, we need to counter this. And, and the countering is not um, um, adversarial. It's more of a strategic of like, hi, um, thank you so much for the meeting. Uh, I acknowledge this is uh, intern year has been somewhat difficult. Uh, I've been learning a lot as well as, you know, wanting to learn more, wanted to get some um, pointers on what I should do to make myself better within this year, you know, or, or whatever. So it's one, you're saying that you're stating the problem that you're aware of it. So strategic, right? Secondly, you're acknowledging that it's a hard year. You're putting the writing out there that if this ever became litigious, that, that, that you're an intern, it's supposed to be hard. You know, right. you're sleepy, you're tired, you're not learning a lot, you don't have time to study. Um, and then thirdly, you're still saying I'm being a team player because I want to make sure that I'm trying to receive whatever you're trying to teach me and that I'm teachable. So that still says you're on the team play. So that is a strategic letter. That is a strategic, but I'm saying strategic and I mean that you've got to go look at those files. You got to go ask for those. A lot of times residents don't even think about looking at their own file and it is yours, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I would say is have an ally that is outside of orthopedics or outside of whatever your field of expertise is. So you can be an intern in medicine and peds and ortho, whatever else, you should have someone that's not in that field. Someone that may be at that hospital and hopefully has some clout, but does not necessarily have a stake in your department or your um, success or failure. You know what I mean? So that right. becomes your advocate. That is the advocate that is going to say, um, she may be, you know, very boisterous or she may be very vocal about some things, but she's very good surgically. You guys haven't documented that as well as this is what most residents go through. So it gives an outside view of what is going on in a, in a system that sometimes is not um, open to everyone. And this is definitely somebody at that institution this, that, that you need in your corner. I would, I would. And then I would go further to have someone in an organization. So this is where like within ortho, something like Gladden Society, Nth Dimensions, BWS, Black Women Orthopedic Societies, the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, which is specifically for women. Um, there's, and there's, there's a few others that you would want to have someone in one of those organizations that sort of has a feel of what's going on. And that may be your mentor as well. They can't necessarily advocate for you because, uh, they don't have a stake in that facility for, per right. se, but they have enough clout to make a little noise for you, you know, sort yeah. of like, Hey, we're over here and we're watching, you know, don't do anything crazy kind of thing, you know? Uh, so that puts people on notice of that they're being watched as well. And so what happens nine times out of 10, the statistics that came out from the ACGME recently, 2017, 2018, was that 40% of African-American residents that are in orthopedic surgeries are dismissed before year three. 
Really? 40%? That is a high number. And ACGME has been sitting on this number for a long time. Oh, we don't have the numbers. We don't know. Whatever else. 40%. That's a high number. It's one of the highest numbers of all residencies. You know, and then African American, then it was Hispanics. uh, And then it was, I believe, ortho. Then it was surgery. And then it may have been PEDS or something like that. So that's going to be published soon. But what we don't know is we don't know those numbers going in. You think everyone's your friend. You think everybody's on the same team. You think everybody wants to see you succeed, but then you forget there's other other implicit bias, unconscious bias, racial bias. There are. Yep. It's out there. It's out there, and it's sometimes not not uh, purposeful or intentional or hurtful, but it does come out. And then you have a cross contamination of other people, maybe staff that haven't had a chance to rotate with you or haven't had a chance to uh, operate with you, but they've been with Bob on the golf course and Bob's talked bad about you. Yep. And so before you even get a chance, before you even get a chance, it's that, you know, and that, that is, that's a hard um, thing to try to reverse, you know? And so that's what we found a lot of times within residency that uh, we don't get a chance, you know, And, and even if you do get a chance, with the others that are there that are going to mentor and advocate for you, it's subjective. So it becomes their word against your word, and you have no word. You have no power. You have no say. So you need a lot of this thing, a lot of these things in the writing as well. Correct. So that's the strategy, right? So being very, very strategic of what you put in writing. Not only that, I would go a step further, and I would say you don't put it in the academic email. You can send it from that email, but you better CC yourself and/or that other advocate that's someplace else or blind copy them. So therefore, there's always a record of that statement, of that document, of your response to it, because we have had situations where a resident was on their way out the door and um, they couldn't access those records because they had either were suspended or whatever else. And so therefore, those emails were now locked up because that's property of the university, right? Wouldn't have thought of that. That's a good one. Of the medical school. So therefore, Gmail or your Yahoo or whatever else, but using another one or email it to yourself or CC it to somebody else. So there's a document of it always. Yeah. And these are real things that that happens because I know people that this has happened too. you know, um, everybody listening. This is really good, solid advice. Recently. Uh, And then and then the other thing is like, so you don't want to be on the defensive all the time. So how can I be on the offensive? Right. So the only way to really get ahead is to be on the offensive. So offensive is going with the preset of like, okay, so, you know, um, that you're going to have this rotation with this one faculty member that is somewhat problematic. You go in before that you even get on the rotation and ask to have a meeting, have a sit down and um, get to know them. And so um, rule number four is still the totem pole, right? It's the hierarchy. The hierarchy is there to protect you, but it's also about respect. And a lot of times, especially if it's a, uh, a generation that is seasoned, they want the respect and they want to know you, you're still learning, you know, earning your letters, if you say, if, if you will, you know, you don't know ortho yet. So by you going in and respectfully and humbly almost uh, presenting to yourself, to them that, you know, I'm here to learn what, what is it that uh, I could do to make sure that I'm successful on this um, rotation or on this fellowship or on this whatever else. What is it that you would like to see um, in research or, you know, whatever else? So you're seeing where they are. And then you also get a feel they'll see that you're uh, proactive and that you're coming in with a different mindset than maybe others have in the past. And so it may look like a gunner. 
Uh, but again, that's what it takes, you know, right. to be successful in these situations and these roles. And it's so putting yourself out there and going to meet to them and speak to them. And it's the it's the little things, you know, remembering the freaking doctor's children's name, the damn dog's name. You know, those are the things that stick in the operating room. It's like, well, how's it's little true. Johnny? How's little Johnny doing? Oh, yeah, he's great. He went to daycare the other day. And, da, da, da. and it opens them up because then you become more personable to them. So it seems like it's a small stuff and it shouldn't matter, but this is also life. It's called playing the game, rule 25, the politics sides, you know, right. play the game, learn to play yes. the game. Yeah. Very true. And uh, all solid advice. And I would encourage everybody here listening to this to go and read your book, The Rules of Medicine. Again, uh, a bunch of rules, great stories in there. Yeah. Um, and, and you'll definitely learn a lot more and expand on some of the things that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. But, one thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier that I just wanted to pick your brains on is that you were going into med school having a business as well. And so one of the questions I have is how did you learn to balance or what obstacles did you overcome? Because I was in a similar situation when I started medical school, I was running a startup company. So it was trying, you know, I was in classes during the morning and then during half during like the lunch, I'll go into like a pitch and try to pitch investors and then come back and do, you know, anatomy yeah. lab, whatever was, whatever it was, was hard. It's so hard. How did you uh, overcome that? It was hard for me. Um, it wasn't that I was trying to really have a business. Like it was all new to me. It was something I, I um, it, it's innate, you know, that either you're a business type of entrepreneur type of mind and energy or you're not. It, it is right. what it is. Uh, and so I didn't realize I had that. I, I guess I got it from my, my dad more than my mom. But when I went into medical school, I really went in focus. I, I really tried to leave the business or whatever else, but I was still, like you said, dibbling and dabbling and fine tuning and trying to, you know, do whatever. Uh, and I, it really did. I didn't want to sell it. You know, I really didn't want right. to sell it, but it was like, I couldn't continue with the time and my parents could not either, you know, kind of thing. It's hard. But yeah, it's very, very hard. So I would say, you know, depending on the, the business itself, you know, and it's different than what it was in 95, 96, than today, especially if you can have things that are online and it can almost sell themselves online without you being there. You know, customer service face-to-face is totally different post-COVID as well. So with that, is it doable? Yes, but you've got to have real expectations. So whatever your expectations, those need to be known uh, upfront, you know, and then willing to what kind of time that you're going to put into it. And then what kind of help do you have? Like you've got to, if you're going to have that business, and it's running, not running itself, but who is your, who's your team? Who's on your business team that's going to help, you know, um, yeah. that you can really trust in the sense of trust no one. But at the same time, it's the, this is your business. This is your baby. So this is either family is going to be helping you, or you've got a business partner you've been in with, or you got someone else that understands that you're sort of the brain or the money. And they're going to do their side, the work part, because you're still doing medicine, you know? So it's just a, uh, it just really depends on what, what it is online. I think you can do it more so than something that's in person, but so, like in mortar, you know? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, and so that being said, so, you, you know, you started med school, you know, more kind of having a business ended up selling that. And then you went through residency and can you kind of tell us between like what brought you towards this kind of locum tenens and, and what it really, what yes. it is. Cause a lot of people, don't even know what it is. I didn't know what it was when I started residency. So what is it? And then what brought you towards it? Definitely. I think um, need necessitated the the job. Basically I came out of residency and I got, it. took a job. I think I took it at 400 or maybe close to 500,000 ortho 
general. Um, I was Q3 coming out. Okay, of a lot of call. That's a lot of call. That's yeah, a lot I, of call. I was still a resident, essentially. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I had had some problems getting pregnant and had two miscarriages that uh, nobody really knew about. I couldn't really share because it was also that uh, you're not supposed to get pregnant in residency kind of thing, you know? Right. So I got pregnant my last three months or whatever, had my, my child. So still the best thing I ever did. But anyway, um, when I finished, uh, I did not get the sports fellowship in, in Houston. So I thought surely, cause Dr. You know, Littner was my mentor, you know, he and Dr. Lowe and Mosley were, you know, I hung out with these guys. They were like my other dads, if you will, you know, right. I just knew I was going to get this fellowship. And so I didn't get the fellowship. I was really hurt. And to be honest, it was like, well, maybe that's a good thing. Cause then I was, you know, trying to have the new family and everything else took this job uh, in West Houston, uh, felt like I was still in residency and to be perfectly honest, got blackballed by some of the fellow doctors that had started their own minor uh, surgical center, like a small surgical center in the hospital that was across the street from where I was. So uh, it was very hard to get patients. It was very hard to uh, fill my clinic. And so then I knew that it was going to be hard to pay back that promissory piece of, you know, if I didn't meet certain levels um, like the contract that you signed like you had to be bringing in x amount of income if not then you yes exactly so uh i knew i was going to be in trouble so at that point it was maybe three months in and i it was within the 90 days to pull out the contract so i pulled out and um and then i just sort of sat for a month or two really trying to figure out what i wanted to do because i knew i didn't want to do another residency didn't really want to do fellowship at that point and was um, going through marital issues, you know, just because of our life and how crazy our life is as residents and everything else. So trying to fix all those things and then realizing I really wanted to spend some time with my family. So I started searching for jobs, like what could I do that's temporary? And locums comes up, never heard of it, never right. heard of it nor anything else. So I start talking to this company, Comp Health, uh, and I'm still with them 15 years later. And it came up that there was a job in Kansas that I was going to do three months to the doctors. One doctor had passed away. The other doctor was older and couldn't do surgery anymore. And the other doctor didn't want to take call. So they were trying to become sort of like a hospitalist ortho group. And they wanted me to come in and start the practice up while they were trying to onboard and get two or three guys in, in the interim. So I was the liaison. I was the locum's liaison. So I went to Kansas for three, almost four months. Uh, made about um, $150,000 in three or four months, uh, worked my ass off, uh, took my daughter with me, got a nanny while I was there. Uh, okay. We lived in like, uh, one of those long stay motel, hotel kind of things, you know, stuff. Went home every other weekend, flew back, flew back and forth between Kansas and Houston with a small child. And, uh, mm-hmm. But it was doable because then I pretty much took off the rest of the year and then got pregnant again, you know? And then I was like, well, wait a minute. I can have the best of both lives. I can work a couple of months, make really good money. And then, you know, go and we went to Hawaii and we went to Europe and, you know, I did all of that. And so I did that for four or five years and then it became a, okay, well, I'm going to take off some time here. I'm going to do this. And then I'm not going to do this or, and it, it stuck. It really stuck. And then I was willing to go because I trained in Houston, which was amazingly, you know, level one trauma, a VA hospital, two private hospitals that were fairly large, Texas Children's, MD Anderson, Shriners Hospital. I mean, I had the most diverse training the most people will ever get and didn't right. realize that's what I was getting. 
you know? So when they start asking me, what are you willing to do? I'm like, I can do anything. Yeah. Whatever you need, whatever you need. And then it was like, they will, we can get you a license in North Dakota. I don't want to go to North Dakota. They're paying 3000 a day. I'm going to North Dakota. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow. Like it was like, we have no one. They'll call you last minute. We have no one uh, to cover for this weekend. And it was a conference. I think we were going to the Academy. You know, these guys were going to the Academy. Everybody's going to be at the Academy. They need coverage. They have a level one trauma. Who could do level one trauma? They just happen to have a North Dakota, li- North Dakota license in Ortho. Hmm. I was the only person. How much did they, how much did I charge? 3,500 a day. Yeah. In a weekend, I can make almost twelve thousand dollars. Where where else can you do that? You know, so and that's not every contract. Don't get me wrong. That's not every contract. But that's what stuck with me for local. So it's that traveling physician that you do contracts in states that you have licenses. They can license you in most states and pretty quickly on top of that. And then you go in, you get acclimated. And so now I know pretty much every electronic, you know, medical record system, EHR, I pretty much know how to run an operating room and, you know, run it and function by myself or with one nurse and maybe with no assistant, if it's a small case, you know. Um, So I'm comfortable in my skin and that's not for everybody, you know, because everybody's not that versatile to do that. Uh, and then it became, it sort of switched up for me because of my background with our church and what we do here in Houston and around the world. Um, we built a medical clinic in Haiti. We've done some other things with uh, other organizations in other countries. And it's afforded me a different view of life other than just being an orthopedic surgeon. So let's back up a little bit because you mentioned a bunch of things that I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into. But one of the first things, so how, you know, one one job you mentioned was three months. One job was a weekend. So how, like, you I guess, pay. how how long are these? Are so these? most of the places will say, this is what we need. But if they need it bad enough, they'll take what they can get. You know what I mean? So I, um, I didn't want to go to Kansas for six months. I told them I could do three months. They took the three months. And then what happened was I expanded to four because the first guy that was coming in didn't get his final licensing or whatever to the fourth month. And I still was making great money, you know, and I didn't want to just totally give that up yet. So I think I stayed another. I remember we had tickets, first class tickets to Hawaii family trip. And they paid for everything to be changed so I could stay an extra two weeks there. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, like when, when I say when they, if they want you and they want you to do something, they'll, they'll fix it. They'll fix it. Um, government contracts are a little bit harder. The one I have now is a little bit harder because some of those are fixed numbers, you know, that you can't really change until the yearly one or two year contracts. And they're usually also the low ball contracts, but then you can have the higher ones. Sometimes they just want a weekend coverage. You know, there was a guy that I covered for like four years, every October for two weeks. Um, he was in a solo practice and he just wanted to go fly fishing for two weeks out of the year. Really? And so that two weeks out of the year, I went to Martinsburg, Virginia and covered him, you know, and it was great. And we had a, a great relationship. He knew I was sincere and took care of his patients. Um, it was a very small town and um, everyone loved him. He was like the only ortho doc there and, you know, that kind of thing. But they knew I was there two weeks out of the year for four or five years, you know, so it was it was good. And then he retired. Um, I went back after he retired and helped close out his business because that was another thing that I did uh, as far as locums goes. I do help that side too. Um, There's been situations where another organization has pulled out of their contract and then like Comp Health has come in to take the contract over and they say, can you come and 
just cover this weekend or cover this one week until we get somebody else there or whatever. And they're usually willing to pay really good. Yeah. Other times it's where I want to go, you know? And what are like the baseline? You don't have to give exact numbers, but like around how much can one expect to make? Like, you know, you're a, you know, you're a surgeon, orthopedic surgeon to say, you know, they had this job for you here for this week. And what is like a somewhat decent salary to be able to make for that weekend is doing this locum's job. Uh, so like they're probably going to pay you hourly. And so usually it's zero, you zero to eight hours on a government contract, maybe $1,500. Right? Okay. But after that, your overtime is maybe 250. So every hour over that eight hours, you're making 250. So and the money is in the overtime, you know, on a government contract. On a and government most contract. Other places, most other places will give you a flat rate for a day. So if I've been in Louisiana, I think I was in Alexandria, they may pay $2,200 a day. So that was me covering that 24 hours. And then for me to be on call was another 750 a day just to cover call. And that doesn't include, do you get additional payment from call cases that come in? Uh, no, if you that 24 hours is that $2,200, but then you're also being paid. So you're almost making 3000 a day, essentially. So it doesn't matter. So for just in this, this example, if you're on call at this facility, it doesn't matter if you do one case or 10 cases, you, you're you at that, with that contract, you're making the same amount. Correct. But if other places they're paying you hourly and the hourly is good, then you can make a lot more money at that place. Okay. So it varies. It varies. It really does vary. But the average probably would be more like 1700 a day, zero to eight hours. And then over time would be anywhere from 250 up to 500 a day. And so how do you choose a good company for, with you know, to do a local attendance? Because there are a lot of different companies out there. How do you choose a good one? And what are some things that you've like you know throughout the years you said okay well you should definitely avoid this one but this is this is good I'll, you should definitely have this yeah. when they come to you in the contract or whatever it may be I, I just actually spoke one um the american association of uh, physician recruiting and so what what doctors and usually we're green we don't know what we're looking at and we don't know what we're looking for you know right. and that's that's part of the problem um so they can sort of get you you know uh, yes. A lot of these companies will will not put it in writing. It'll be something that they're telling you on the phone until you get it in writing. Don't sign anything. You know, the other thing is like, um, be very, very specific about numbers. Is that a flat rate? Is that a, uh, a zero to eight hours? Is that a 12 hour or a 24 hour rate? What is the overtime hourly? Is there a max? Is there a minimum that I have to meet? There's some contracts that will say you get paid a thousand dollars for a weekend call but you still have to cover zero to four hours before you can get that thousand dollars. So you've got to read the fine print on some of the contracts. Uh, Most organizations that are out there, there's a a lot of them. I I would say comp health, whether be uh, are the, the topper, the top uh, organizations, which is under CHG. It's sort of like an umbrella company. Uh, And then there's several others. uh, And I won't make, start making, mentioning names, but, when you look on websites and you start looking for their referrals or their references, they should be able to give you references for people to talk to, doctors to talk to, and to say, would you work for this company again? Where most docs are going to be very, very honest because they have no stake in that company, you know, because we're all self-contractors. Um, it's that kind of thing. Then the next thing would be making sure the travel is covered. Most companies will travel your com- uh, cover your travel, but some of them will not. So they may ask you to pay for it up front and then you get reimbursed. Like, I don't do that. So <laughs> I, I'm like, you make my flight, you make my hotel, you get in my car. Only thing I pay for is gas and I get reimbursed for that in parking. So that's and, standard. So paying for housing, paying for travel, 
Correct. As well as a rental car. Yeah, exactly. And and that comes through the company, not necessarily through the hospital that you're being. Right. And then, well, some places are. So like Virginia, where I was going, where that, that older doctor was, the hospital owned a house that was, you know, their locum's house, if you will. And which meant that there may be three other people there that you don't know. There's like like living in college again right and so that was yeah. like yeah that's a no-go for me I'm I'm a grown-ass woman I'm not doing that I don't know these people I don't want to be in a house with them in the house I didn't really care for put me in a hotel I'm gonna be at the Holiday Inn you know it's that uh, there's the the caveat of uh, one organization was like well we'll cover the hotel and the car but you can cover the flight and we'll reimburse you no no Right. So, you know, everything on the on the front end, you know, and there's just different organizations say different things. So get that in writing up front. Don't sign anything until and the other thing is, if you wanted to break the contract, what is the break contract? Um, most of them are 30 days. And then you also want to be make sure that you're not locked in for a year or six months with that organization. You know, so, so even if you break the contract, we had one lady that came and uh, worked a government contract. She realized I my contract was more than her contract. We're doing the same thing, but uh, you know, I negotiated up. She did not, and so therefore, she got upset and was like, "Well, I'm going to leave my company and come to your company." <laughs> you know, right. but you can't do that. It was almost like a non-compete because right. she'd signed a, a, a six-month contract. So she just basically bowed out and was like, "I can't." After 30 days, I give you my 30-day notice, and then she could not work any place in that contract in that government contract system for another company because she had told her company she wouldn't signed that six to six months. So and so what happen. does, well, I guess, what is the, or does the, the locums company, do they get mostly the contracts through the hospitals? That's how their, their revenue base, like you're like you as a physician, you're not paying out the company. Are you by any chance oh, there? You know, they're not at all. So, and, and in fact, most of them, if I bill out 10,000, they're billing out 20 and they okay. get 10, I get 10, you know? Right. Uh, so that's probably more average than what in most places are. So they're, they're going to bill whatever you bill, they're going to bill double. Because also most companies, you also want to make sure they're covering like your insurance and whatever else. So that's exactly what um, I was going to ask next yeah, is about yeah, the malpractice like, so insurance. Health so covers that my insurance and my tell. I have a seven year tell. And that's not not every not or not every organization does that. So that's another thing you want to ask. Is there a, is there insurance and is there a tell? Meaning they're covering you after seven years if something goes wrong. That's what the tell. That's what the tell means with, with any patient or whatever. And Correct. the insurance is it only up to a certain amount? Like, is that something that most you states, negotiate? Most, no, most states will have a standard of a million to three. Like, there's a million of incidents and then like reoccurrence or whatever, three million. Um, other states like Virginia, maybe New York, um, is higher. Maybe like a two or five million, but they cover that. That and then the, one thing you mentioned earlier was the licensing in the different uh in the different states mm-hmm. now is that like i know when i was getting my license here in louisiana i had to drive from atlanta to here and, and go and fill out paperwork with my hand and you know it took a little while now i guess how does that process work since you know it's locums and you may go to hawaii one week versus somewhere else another week like is that the, everything's electronic or? now you know everything pdf fill and file and um, pretty much you don't have to worry about that. The things like, like Louisiana specifically was like, they had to have your interview. And when you got your first not license, you had to have an interview with actually one of the state medical people, like whoever was on their board. 
And it just so happened the person that I was paired up with was in Atlanta at the NMA conference. <laughs> of course. And I was starting work in September and it was July and the, there was not going to be another meeting or something like that until 1st of September. So we were pushing it, the days or whatever else. So Comp Health decided to fly me to Atlanta that morning to meet her for lunch, to do my interview for my Louisiana license in Georgia. <laughs> and then I turned around, got back on a plane and came back to Texas, you know? So it was just, it's, it's crazy what they will do. But now with the whole interstate um, filing system where you can license in multiple states at the same time, uh, it's a lot easier, you know, to do that. And then locums does have like a, it's not an emergency license, what they call it, but basically it's a locums license that is temporary until you get the final, the permanent. And like different states take you know, shorter or longer. Uh, definitely during COVID, everyone can get one pretty fast, you know, but I definitely like North Dakota. I think I had a license within three weeks, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Colorado was like a month or whatever. So it's not long, but places like California, New York, Florida, Texas, you're talking four or six months sometimes, if not longer, you know? Oh, so you need, you need to know. So you get these contracts pretty far in advance. Like it's not like some of them, some of them, but usually what happens if you get in with an organization, say like you get in with a, um, a large organization like comp health or CHG, they'll try to um, license you in the state that they know they have a lot of regular ongoing. So they'll, they'll try to do a New Mexico, a Louisiana, a Kansas, uh, a Florida and, and California is going to be harder, but those states are usually the norm states, maybe Virginia, if you're willing to go to North Dakota or Maine, you know, those are states that are always in need of locums doctors, you know, kind of thing. Um, there's some places that I won't go. My company knows now that I'm like, if it's going to take me more than three hour flight or a two hour drive, I'm not going. Yeah. I just don't. And is that just, is that just the relationship you have with a specific recruiter in the company or? No, that's the, the every recruiter that knows me. And, and I've been there long enough now. They, they all know me, you know, right. but even starting out, it was like, I don't want to have to be more than a two hour or three hour flight away from home. If I had to get home, because I had small kill, I had small children starting out. And then even now it's more of, if it takes me more than six hours to get home, like meaning a drive and a car and a wait and whatever else, it's like, what's the point? Because you're not going to pay me for that day. So I'm losing money to travel for you for a longer place. So that doesn't make sense to me, you know? So it, it just, and that's just me. Some people don't care about that, you know? Right. But if not, um, then maybe negotiate that. That's another thing, you know, everything's and, negotiable. And can you take us through like one of the, you know, one of the experiences like one, that you have, like you just show up, you just work, or you're going at orientation and you have to sit in all these different, you know, like when I started off here with residency, I had to sit like two or three days worth of orientation to sit there and lectures and go through. And each one is different. Each one is different. So I've been, I'll, I'll say, so, so the worst I showed up and they didn't even know I was coming. Of course. You know, the, the HR department, like, who are you? What are you doing? You know what? Da, da, da. And it's like, okay, well, we'll give you a badge and uh, yeah, just, you want to go to the floor and the clinic is down on the first floor. It was one of those, you know, and it's like, I got to figure <laughs> out the system. And it's like, oh, by the way, call HR or call the IT people. Can I get a passcode? I've had that situation. I've had other situations where I walk in and it's like red carpet, you know, Oshner and Baton Rouge. And I worked there for over five years off and on. 
Um, I got there, they had my white coat with my name and their logo on it. I had an itinerary of everybody that I was going to meet and not only who I was going to meet, but who was the person that was going to be taking me to the next person, like, you know, Trent, like handoff, you know, this is Dr. Sloan and now she's ready for her IT, you know, and then, oh, this is Dr. Sloan. She's now ready for her medical billing, like one of the most thorough that I ever did. And that was an epic training, you know, so epic, you know, was like the, probably the, the monster of all EHRs. And so they did an eight hour paid session for you to learn it. They paid me to sit there for the eight hours to learn Epic because it was that important, you know, whatever, Um, which was to my benefit because then when I worked at a Mayo place up in North Dakota, that was Epic, you know? Right. So then that's, that sells you also as a doctor. It's like, she also knows Epic or she's trained on Epic and they're like, well, yeah, she can go, you know? Okay. Yeah, Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, And another question, um, that that I had regarding you know kind of the, this locums and going to you know all these different places is what is I guess overall your lifestyle like you know like what is the overall lifestyle that you want to achieve like does it does it look like um you know you're there in clinic all the time or you are just on call or just every every single contract is just different or every, every single the one's different so uh I've done places where I just take call I go in and I am just sitting in a hotel, waiting for the ER to call me. And if that something comes in, I can take the surgery. I don't have a clinic. You know, I don't have to round on patients on the floor, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there's other places that I've gone and they just want a clinic. Virginia, um, Alexandria for a period of time. I just did Monday through Friday clinic, you know, eight to five. That's all they wanted. No ER cover, no nighttime call, no weekend call. This is like an urgent um, care clinic or is it like an orthopedic clinic where they just follow up with another person? It was, or, it was like an ortho clinic, right? They had their own full-time clinic, you know, with their own PA, own nurse or whatever else. And you're just there to do the orthopedic stuff, look at the x-rays, help with casting. If something was surgical, you're going to send it out or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, where I'm at now on the Indian reservation, I do clinic Monday through Friday, on Tuesday, Thursday, I have surgeries in the morning and I'm on call every night for seven nights. Oh, wow, you know, okay. and, and it includes the weekend. Anything comes in the weekend, I can take to surgery. And how does it, it function as a regular, it almost functions like a regular full-time, you know, like a regular orthopod would do. And, and so like, if you're in boards collections for say, like, you know, you just started off and I've, I've heard stories of a couple of residents and fellows having some troubles finding jobs, especially during like the COVID era. Yeah. That's a whole monster. I can't imagine right now. Yeah. That's different. And then you really have to have a, you have you have to be under contract. So like I was under a contract initially, you know, so you have to have that contract when you're in that collection period, I believe. Okay. So they, I guess I'm not sure the the specifics of it, but you just had to have one contract and that's how they get, collect the patients that you, you know, operate on, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But locums, locums for everyone. It's not for everyone. Definitely not. It's definitely a lifestyle kind of thing and you make it and you tweak it to what you want and need you know for me now it's seven days seven days out of the month and the other three I'm home and I'm mom and I'm first lady and I'm a nonprofit and I'm on serve on boards and you know do dance mom and you know, all of that so it's other stuff you and you're still making like you're not like in general you can still make the 
same amount as if you were employed in a in a private practice per se or i make a so, the, so the range is if the range for the average worth pot is uh 600 i'm probably yeah. the bottom quarter but i only work a week out of a month right you know and without the headache without the whatever else so the, the trade-off is on a good year is 200 on a on a low year is 150 you know uh, so, but for me and my lifestyle, working one week out of the month, it's not too bad. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not bad at all. Yeah. Uh, I've okay. made as much as six, you know, in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, my first year out, I made about six, but uh, I've worked as in locums. I want to say in 2008, 2009, I worked for Oshner full time where I was on, you know, I had, I was there pretty much. I was considered staff, you know, I was full time right. staff. And so therefore I was on call every fourth and rounded and da da da. And you know, had a clinic. And so that went on for a year. And that was definitely um close to a half a million year. And that is and I know the taxes are a little bit different when you're doing um when you're doing like, you know, locums because you're 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 not getting taxes like a W two, you're getting taxes like a business owner, correct? Ten ninety nine. Yeah. So you you turn in that 990 and, you know, you get that at the end and taxes hit hard. So <laughs> you've got to have the tax shelters. You've got to have your LLC, your PLLC um, outside of that, you know, that, that files in as an escort on your 1040. So that business becomes your write-off and that's the best way to make sure you're covered and protected. Yeah. There's, that's a whole nother talk. That's a whole nother podcast. It's a whole, it's it's a lot, it gets a a lot lot deeper. But definitely going in, that was one of those things that they don't teach you either. And I learned the hard way. We're talking probably a hundred thousand dollars in taxes. My first couple of years out that I just was like, yeah, didn't know, just didn't know, but learned the hard way and found out fast how to fix it. (laughs) <laughs> wow okay and, and yeah. before we wrap up here just a couple more questions i was wondering if you could take us uh through a story of your best locums experience and then your worst locums experience i don't know if it's a hospital or or what it what it may be the best locums experience hmm. i would probably say Oshner has been the best Oshner was uh, i was often on there for five years uh, I had a great apartment there. My uh, comp health put me in a three bedroom town home that was fabulous. Um, I had a rental car that I drove back and forth between Houston and Baton Rouge. That was nice. Um, I had my kids in daycare, but my dad also lived in Baton Rouge that helped, you know, me out. Uh, but it was probably the nicest experience as far as feeling like a full-time orthopod. Okay. Know? The staff pretty much knew how I liked things. The OR knew how I liked things. Um, I had my own PA, uh, that kind of stuff. So people thought I was a regular doc, but I was a local, you know, and and they treat you differently. Probably the worst experience, (laughs) the worst experience was a a North Dakota experience. And I won't name names. Uh, (laughs) It was a minus nine degrees. uh, Oh, that's too cold. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm like, what is this plug hanging out the engine? It was like, you know, oh, they plug up their engines to keep them warm. What the hell? Yeah, I'm from Houston, wow. Texas. Yeah, you know. Yeah, not used to that. Yeah. Um, and so it was miserable, but uh the OR staff was uh not used to women and definitely not a black woman. 
and mm -hmm. it was very I, i've had some racist experiences you know um, that a very sexist experiences as well uh kansas area that kind of stuff so those are the experiences that trigger residency you know so right. I, I don't really care to do that but i got paid that's the main thing remember right. job you go there to do a job right well uh dr sloan i think this has been awesome i learned a lot especially about locums that I didn't know before. Again, I yeah. didn't know what that was coming into, uh, coming into residency. Also a lot about you and your personal story as well. I really appreciate you sharing a lot of that with us. Yeah. Um, anything that you, you know, we have a lot of residents that listen to this. We also have some attending, some fellows, I guess, and some people may be considering different job options, but anything else that you just want to, you know, last words that you want to let the people know about uh, regarding, you know, career advice or job advice or whatever you want to say. It could be about anything. Oh, yeah. I, I, my thing is always uh, rule 34 is to pay it forward. You know, it's like we get through residency, we get through medical school and residency and, and start careers and um, we can get caught up in the day to day minutia of, of, of working and, and, and life. Right. Um, but I think in, once you get older and as you mature, it's about leaving a legacy, but more than anything else, it's about paying it forward. It's about helping someone else. It's about sharing your stories. It's about sharing your experiences in life that may be able to benefit someone else that has been through what you've been through, your plight. And so for me, it's like, you know, um, never get too big, never get too um, out there that you can't help someone else. You right. Because everyone has had someone that has helped them along the way. Yep, totally agree. Uh, very, very well said. Uh, where can our listeners follow you at on social media if they just want to just get, stay updated with you or just check you out, see what you have going on? Yeah, um, we talked about this whole thing about different platforms, right? Yes, <laughs> we did. Uh, go <laughs> go for it. You let them know. I don't, for the I don't more mature it. audience, no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, depending on, I, I'm Sonia Sloan, MD, S-O-N-Y-A-M-D-S-L-O-A-N, uh, MD on all platforms, uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Uh, but uh, YouTube as well. So we were talking earlier about uh, if they're on TikTok, it's sort of like the political, I may do some educational short 40, you know, the 40 character, what's current, right? Right. Um, Instagram, you may see my kids, me being dance mom, you may see me doing something silly. It may be my advice. You may see me crying, you know, after what we went through this week with Dr. Preston Phillips and the Lost in Words pod, um, yep. you know, kind of thing. Uh, being very uh, cathartic as well as honest and, and sincere, letting people see the genuine side. Um, I said, Facebook is my church folk, you know, that yep. they know First Lady Sloan, that kind of thing. Uh, so different, different genre of what is being put out. And right. then TikTok is definitely the sarcastic orthodox. Uh, you may see anything. So I'm just <laughs> <Be> prepared. <laughs> Oh, Dr. Slow, it's been again a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank again, I really you. appreciate you coming on. I appreciate uh, it. It's been a great talk. It's been great having you on. And uh, for the listeners listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you go and uh, leave a comment or leave a, a review and let us know how much you enjoyed it and hit the subscribe button. And we will catch you again next time. I told you all today we talked about a lot with Dr. Sloan. I hope you all got some good information. And learned a little bit about locums, learned a little bit about residency and some of the challenges that you can face. 
and please go ahead and hit the subscribe button and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode again a little bit different but we hope that you all have been enjoying these uh, which is just a little bit of a different mix to kind of our general orthopedic knowledge information so we will see you next time this episode is sponsored by locum story have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenums might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenums, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums.